Paul read the 118th Psalm, which could not have been more perfect for today's sermon. It spoke about this is the gate of the Lord, and all of a sudden we're going to be talking about the gates in uh, this particular sermon today. So it's wonderful stuff. I'm going to skip the 119th Psalm, though. Longest uh, psalm in the Bible, 176 verses divided into 22 octaves, and we'd be here, and like I said, until probably dinner time. So uh, we're going to skip it. I read it every day of my life, one of those eight octaves, and uh, I would recommend that everybody does that. That is my prayer to... Uh, before I start reading the Bible every day. It's one of those octaves. Um, So here we are with the 120th Psalm. This is the first of 14 Psalms of Ascent. And the reason why they're called Psalms of Ascent is, um, I'll I'll give you just a little history on these, is that they basically start outside of Israel. They work towards Israel. Then they work inside the borders of Israel. And they work towards Jerusalem. And then they work in Jerusalem, and then they get towards the temple, and then they go into the temple. So you're ascending to where God dwells through these psalms. And it's a wonderful picture of our walk, you know, as we come uh, to know Jesus Christ and to move into the Holy of Holies and to live in his presence forever. So this is the first of those 120 uh, of those 14 psalms, and it starts outside of Israel. This is a song of ascents. In my distress I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. Woe is me that I dwell in Mesech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Brings us to our sermon today, which is Ruth 3, 6 through 13. It's entitled, Midnight at the Threshing Floor. Okay, so let me read you those verses before we get started. Uh, Verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. Michael Jerome, Jerome Williams, Jr. Anybody know who he is? He was born in Memphis, Tennessee. He was one of 12 children born to Denise Orr, who was an alcoholic and a crack addict. His father was frequently in prison. Now, with such tough surroundings, he received very little attention or childhood discipline. He repeated first and second grade and was at 11, get that, 11 different schools during his first nine years. He learned that life was tough, having been placed in foster care at seven, and he went back and forth between foster homes and homelessness. His biological father was murdered in prison when he was a senior in high school. His life was bleak and it was filled with disappointment. But in time, a couple with a daughter and a son 
who attended the same school as him welcomed him into their home and eventually they adopted him. So maybe you're starting to remember who this is now. They tended to his needs once they understood what he had been through and they hired a tutor for him who worked with him for 20 hours per week. During this time, and it's a short amount of time, he earned letters in track and basketball. And in basketball, he averaged 22 points a game and 10 rebounds a game, earning all state honors. He was also a state runner-up in the discus as a senior. And during this time, with all of that other stuff that he's doing, he raised his grade point average from 0.76 to 2.52. After that, he went on to complete college, and he was signed into the NFL in 2008 under the name Michael Orr. Now, little things in life can truly produce immense changes in one's direction. Today, we're going to look at a moment in time which sets up events which will forever change the life of Ruth. Though the outcome won't be known until uh, as we finish today, the divinely orchestrated appointment will lead to a vow from Boaz that whatever the end result, it will be a favorable one for Ruth. It is at times like these that demonstrate that even the things that we think they just seem to be, to be random, they never are. Michael Orr, in his own walk with Christ, has certainly found this out to be true. Our text verse today comes from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. There are times when the outcome of something that we must do may seem scary or overwhelming to face. It's at times like these that we need to remember this proverb here and cling to it. Ruth had seen Naomi return to Israel despite the many heartaches and losses that she had suffered. In witnessing Naomi's implicit trust, Ruth also learned to trust implicitly. She trusted Naomi, who trusted the Lord, and her trust in the Lord led to where she will arrive at tonight, with a blessing and a promise of rest in the home of a kinsman redeemer. We too have a kinsman redeemer, and we too must trust the Lord that our redemption is ahead. We who have believed have entered his rest, though we wait on its final fulfillment. Until that day, no matter what, let's just keep trusting the Lord. He led Michael Orr this far, and he's going to continue to lead us as well. It's a sure promise that we see pictured again and again and again in God's superior word. And so let's turn to that word now, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Okay, I've got three thoughts for you today. The first is Ruth's faithful obedience, which is verses 6 and 7. Now, to get a clearer picture of what our first verse today includes, what we should do is go back and reread the verses which precede it. So I'm going to reread you last week's verses. Then Naomi, this is verse 1, her mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garments and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. From this, we come to our first verse of the day, verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. Naomi would never have asked Ruth to do something she felt was inappropriate. Would not have happened. Ruth knew this, and she also felt this obligation through love to follow the instructions as they were given. 
Her love for Naomi led to her childlike obedience and how she conducted herself through this very delicate ritual. And yet, Naomi's love for Ruth is also evident in searching for a place of rest for her daughter-in-law. If Ruth were to marry, there was nothing to guarantee that a kinsman redeemer like Boaz would build an addition on his house for Naomi. Although unlikely, she could be left in a lonely position through her own actions. But their mutual love is what's driving their decisions and actions as they go about fulfilling the hope-filled plan. And so the Bible records Ruth's obedience in the words that she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. Verse 7, and after that, Boaz, and after Boaz had eaten and drunk, well, this is exactly what Naomi had specified, that she should not make herself known, meaning her intentions, until after Boaz had eaten and drunk. Now, that's an obviously understood maxim to most people. Another person will normally be more well disposed to a matter after having first eaten. In the book of Esther, before requesting an especially important matter from the king of Persia, Esther first invited him to a banquet knowing that this would make the chance of him granting her request more favorable. Likewise, one should never go shopping before eating a meal unless they have a very fat wallet. It's a mistake I continuously make. People tend to act much more impulsively and without great thought before a meal than they do after one. Naomi understood this in her directions to Ruth. Ruth, in turn, trusted Naomi's directions and carefully followed them. Verse 7 going on. And his heart was cheerful. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. The word here translated as cheerful is the Hebrew word yatav. It signifies something good, something well or glad or pleasing. Thus his mood and his disposition after a long day of work was that of a refreshed laborer. Ecclesiastes speaks of the work of a laborer and how it affects his sleep. Here's what it says. One of my favorite verses in the Bible from Ecclesiastes 3. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet whether he eats little or much. If the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, even if he eats little, how much more sweetly will he sleep after he's had a good meal? Boaz was well-fed and he was well-filled and probably on a soft bed of the stalks which had been separated from the grain. There at the end of the heap of grain, he probably sweetly slept and maybe he dreamt of that beautiful young woman who came to glean each day in his fields. Verse 7 goes on. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Again, Ruth followed Naomi's directions exactly as given. Naomi's direction for her to wait until he was asleep was certainly an intended precaution. Not because she didn't trust either Boaz or Ruth, but because she understood human nature. To come to him after a meal and yet before he slept is the time of man's greatest weakness in regards to his natural inclinations. But that quickly fades as the man minutes turn into hours and they pass from a light sleep to the deep sleep, which causes the brain to become foggy. The natural inclinations for companionship are replaced with natural inclinations for what? For more sleep. Naomi, a widow who had borne two children, understood these things well enough to know them intimately. Ruth obediently followed her directions and came softly. The Hebrew word that is used here in this verse is lat and it indicates secrecy or a mystery. In other words, she crept in probably on little tippy toes in order to not disturb his slumber. Upon her arrival, she uncovered his feet and she lay down. In these actions, as I showed you last week, neither she nor Naomi who recommended those actions have done anything wrong or even mildly inappropriate. Ruth is offering herself to a person 
who has the right to redeem her, and she is doing this under the provisions of the law and in the culture of the land. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, following the Lord and worshiping under the church steeple, and to the Lord praises and honor to give, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is certainly the gift of God, so let us think to honor him and to him always remain loyal. Our second thought, a midnight meeting, which is verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, now it happened at midnight that the man was startled. The Hebrew here uses the term bechashti halaya, in the middle of the night. Until this point, he was unaware of anything that had come about and was instead, he was deeply, deeply in his sweet, sweet slumber. But at some point there in the middle of the night, he was startled. And the word used to describe him in this is harad. This was not merely a light startle, but it was something that he was truly afraid as of, you know, he didn't know maybe there's a lion at his feet. Maybe there's a person with an ax at his feet. He had no idea. The same word was used for the very first time in scripture to describe Isaac's reaction when he realized that whoever he blessed was not the son that he thought he had blessed. Here's what it says from Genesis 27. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly. And it's the same word that was used when the people were at Mount Sinai. And they heard, you know, the voice of the Lord in the trumpet and they trembled exceedingly. And Isaac goes on and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate of all of it before you came and I have blessed him and indeed he shall be blessed. In response to Boaz's fear, we, re we read the following. Verse 8 continues, And turned himself. The word here is lafat. It's in a reflexive form of the verb here, which means to grasp with a twisting or bending motion. If you think of, um, what's the guy, um, uh, the guy that pushed out the uh, pillars? Um, Samson. Samson, thank you. He, same word is used there with that. In other words, what he does here is he bent forward and he grasped as if in a self-defensive motion. Instead of finding a large predator or a strong-armed foe, he realizes it's something entirely different. And there was a woman lying at his feet, it says. The translation here is lacking. Rather than a mundane and there, it should be translated like the old versions do. Behold, or maybe something more modern like, whoa. Instead, whatever he may have expected, he came across the entirely unexpected. A woman was lying at his feet. Verse 9. Then he said, who are you? Suddenly realizing that there is minimal threat and that it's a woman who's lying at his feet rather than a man or a beast ready to attack, he adjusts his mind and he asks directly who she is. It is at the moment when somebody realizes safety, but they still have a, a state of confusion, which is ruling their mind. Verse 9 continues, So she answered, answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. The first response brings clarity to the who, but not the why. She says, Anochi Ruth Amatecha. I am Ruth, your maidservant. In essence, she allows him to momentarily grasp that it is the young lady who has gleaned and worked diligently in his fields and to whom he has been so generous, right? Verse 9 continues, Take your maidservant under your wing. Following up her identification, the words that she uses here will take careful explanation to fully understand. Literally, she says, And spread therefore your skirt over your handmaid. It is a proverbial expression which implies marriage, and her request is that it be him who would perform that duty for her. She's been sent by Naomi to request this ancient rite to be fulfilled by Boaz. The rite had a unique symbol, which was uh, when it was claimed, which is that of wings. 
Naomi had said that she would look for a place of rest for Ruth. Marriage is that place of rest, and it is represented by being under the husband's wings or under his skirt. In essence, the covering of the man is the covering of the woman. The word for wing here is kanaf, and it can be translated as wing, garment, skirt, edge, extremity, etc. It's the outside of something. It's the same word that Boaz used in the previous chapter when he said this to Ruth. He said, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. She's calling that to reminder right now, understanding that Jehovah, the Lord, often works through human representation. Just as the high priest of Israel was the human mediator between God and the people of Israel, and as the judge of Israel or a prophet of Israel represented the Lord, she also understood that a husband was the representative of the family before the Lord. She was asking to come under his wings because she had come under the wings of Jehovah. In Ezekiel 16, the same terminology is used by the Lord concerning his relationship with Israel. I read a portion of this last week. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord. The rite of marriage is a resting place. God equated his relationship with Israel to marriage. In the Old Testament, he is the loving bridegroom of his people. But that symbolism translates into the New Testament as well in our relationship with Jesus Christ. He, the embodiment of Jehovah the Lord, had called Israel and they had continuously failed to respond as he relayed to them on that Palm Sunday just before they crucified him. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And understanding Ruth's words now and who she and who Boaz picture, the story takes on a wonderful portrait of the unfolding events of redemptive history. Each verse is being used to show us marvelous hints to ponder and then to hopefully recognize what God is doing throughout human history. The pulpit commentary, and I want to read this to you, and I want you to try to grasp what I'm saying. They translate Ruth's words here as an affirmative statement, and I agree with their translation. Here's the way they translate this verse. And thou hast spread thy wings over thy handmaid, for thou art kinsman. In essence, even though she placed herself under his covering, she says it as if it was his own deliberate act. In other words, it would be as if she said, me lying here under your garment demonstrates the true relationship in which we already stand. You are my kinsman, and therefore I am yours if you wish. She is offering herself to him while stating that he already has the rights to her because of his relationship to her. It is her consent to a right that he possesses. And we went through that last week with gleaning. He owns the field. He has a right and an obligation to allow gleaners. But at the same time, they have to come out to the field and actually want to glean. Her right is based on, or his right is based on her consent. Now, if you think for a moment about this, as Ruth being you, okay, and Boaz being Jesus, it'll make much more sense. Jesus is our kinsman. Okay, and he possesses the right to redeem us. When we offer ourselves to him, it is because he possesses that right of redemption. 
he has potentially spread his wings over all human beings by joining with humanity. He actually spreads his wings over them when we exercise our right to allow him to do so. It is a picture of God's offering and our free will to accept that offering. So without being presumptuous, we could say, you have redeemed me, therefore redeem me, right? That's our relationship with Christ. Verse 9 continues, for you are a close relative. When Boaz was first introduced into the story, a different word was used to describe him as a relative. We talked about that a little bit last week. The word was modah. It's a male relative. That denotes someone who is intimately acquainted and thus a near relative. However, the word used in this verse for close relative is goel. It is a kinsman redeemer as prescribed by the law. In essence, it is one who enforces a claim which has lapsed and thus a person who reclaims. Now think of Christ reclaiming, okay? The verb of this word can be used in the redeeming of a house or of property after it's been sold and even from an Israelite that has sold himself into slavery. The goel has the right to reclaim the property or the person. In the case of Ruth, if Boaz turned down that redemption, what would happen? Both he and Ruth would suffer disgrace. Knowing this, Naomi would never, never have sent Ruth out in this way unless she was absolutely certain that Boaz would agree. This is all the more sure because in Ruth's words, she acknowledges that Boaz has this right, but she uses no definite article in the Hebrew. He is not the Goel, but a Goel. As there are others who could perform this duty, it would be unnecessarily humiliating to both of them for absolutely no reason. Unless there was some certainty that he would favorably respond, both Naomi and Ruth would never have gone through with any of it. All right? What they, would have, what they have done is honest, it's lawful, and it's tenderly emotional. The elegant ritual here that we have been allowed to witness shows purity, it shows love, and it shows the noble actions of Ruth. And these in turn are acknowledged and testified by Boaz when he speaks verse 10. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord my daughter. The response of Boaz here vindicates Ruth's actions as being pure and noble. No hint of accusation and no note of condemnation is given. Instead, he explains that she is truly blessed of the Lord. Jehovah himself has smiled on her efforts. But Boaz also remains very content to call her my daughter. Nothing has been settled yet and nothing will be settled in his words during the night. And so he says nothing yet to stir her emotions or give hint that she is any closer to him than she was before she came to the threshing floor. And yet at the same time, he continues with his praise of her and of her actions. Verse 10, going on, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning. This term used by Boaz is like saying, you have been faithful from square one, but your faithfulness has grown all along, right? She married into a family of Israel and was willing to forsake the gods of her land. When her husband died, she remained faithful to her mother-in-law and to the God of Israel, whom Naomi worshipped. But these things occurred when times were tough. People will always, always draw closer to God and to one another through the tough times. We know that. There's no atheist in the foxhole, they say. But when things get better, those close connections often drop by the wayside. Families separate, and the worship of God is left behind in the midst of a more prosperous existence. Perfect example of that is 2001. I had just come to meet the Lord early in 2001, and there, it, 
right after 9-11, I was going to church as I did each Sunday, and the church was full, absolutely full. And I read an article that said churches all over America were full because all of a sudden there's trouble. And then a month later, people figured, I'm not getting anywhere with this, and they left, okay? Ruth was exceptional in that she stuck it out through the hard times, and she continued to stay during the good. In the fields of Boaz, there were many young men whom she could have followed. Naomi could have asked for the right to redemption personally, but she didn't. Remember, Ruth hinted that to her when she kind of stepped back, said, I'm going to hang around with the men. And Ruth said, no, you hang around with the women. Naomi excused herself from that position, and so what did Ruth do? She willingly accepted the responsibility. She instead committed to her husband's family and name and declined to seek marriage outside of that. In essence, as a guy named Michalis paraphrases this verse, listen to how he paraphrases it. The kindness which thou art showing to thy husband, now that he is gone, is still greater than what thou didst show to him while he lived. In using the term Goel when referring to Boaz, she was respectfully considering the duty which she owed to her dead husband's name and to his memory. Boaz realized this and certainly was even more struck by the nobility of her actions, especially considering his own age. He was a contemporary, remember, of Elimelech, his father-in-law, her father-in-law. What may have seemed repugnant to some women, making such an offering to an old man like this was considered the right and honorable course of action by Ruth. Ruth verse 10 continues, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. In Ruth, Boaz sees that she deliberately refrained from any men, as the plural here indicates. The entire spectrum is included, whether they were handsome and poor, or whether they were ugly and rich, or whether they were handsome and rich. She completely shut herself and her personal desires for either wealth or physical pleasure. It was completely out of the picture. Instead, she devoted herself to Naomi, and she has now devoted herself to the memory of her dead husband. And yet, it's apparent from Boaz's words that she was young, beautiful, and vibrant. Those physical qualities could have brought her into the favor of any willing man, but instead she kept away from such possibilities. Though many trials and temptations may come my way, I pray for strength to remain faithful to you, O God. Grant me the ability to turn and walk away from any form of sin which lies ahead on the path I trod. Oh, that I would be faithful to your word, and that I would never displease you with the life I live. Help me to bring honor and glory to you, my Lord, in this one life which to me you did give. Thank you for your kind hand of grace upon me, and thank you for looking after your other children, each of us. I know that it is a gift which is granted for all eternity, and it came through the precious shed blood of Jesus. Our third thought, a woman of virtue, which is verses 11 through 13. Verse 11, and now my daughter, do not fear. There is no doubt that her voice was trembling. I mean, imagine her doing this at this time of the night. She's trembling as she speaks. And Boaz's words here are given as an assurance that he has found her actions appropriate and that she can now rest easily. He won't attempt to defile her, which she may have been worried about. He won't attempt to shame her by saying, you know, this nasty young woman came to me in the middle of the night. He's not going to do that. And he's not going to allow her dead husband's name to remain in the unhappy state of being cut off. And again, in his words of comfort, he calls her my daughter. Though he has responded favorably, he has not responded in a way which yet acknowledges that he will be the one to fulfill her request. 
It will be fulfilled, and she should not fear in that regard. But he has not yet changed his words of relationship to her. She's still a younger lady that is not his, hence the term, my daughter. Verse 11 going on, I will do for you all that you request. In verse 5 from last week, Naomi said this as she instructed Ruth, Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. However, Boaz now says, I will do for you all that you request. The words of Ruth to Boaz are the very things which Boaz has agreed to. Here we can see how the hand of the Lord guided the events of Ruth's life. Her words, which were the desire of her heart, will be fulfilled through this meeting with Boaz. Verse 11 going on, For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. These words actually say, For all the gate of my people know. The word translated as town here is sha'ar. It's a gate. The gate of the city is then similar to the courthouse today. It represents the whole city. Those who sat at the gate were the elders and the judges of the city. They would render their decisions, and they do it there for probably many reasons. If someone was to be expelled from the, from the city, what would they do? They'd simply toss him out the gate. If a person were to be commended or punished, the gate would be the perfect spot to do so because of those coming in and out of the city would see it as it took place. Hence, Jesus was crucified right outside the gate of the city. And another reason is that anyone who wanted to go into the city would have to meet with their approval. And likewise, if someone wanted to leave, they could determine if he wasn't an escaping criminal or maybe a defector from the community. An interesting example of the last type is from uh, Jeremiah chapter 37. He was instructed by the Lord. The Lord told him to do this. Go out and buy a piece of property from your uncle. And he did so. On his way out of Jerusalem to go and claim his property, he was accused of being a defector to the enemies. Here's what it says. And it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard was there whose name was Iriah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah. And he seized Jeremiah the prophet saying, you are defecting to the Chaldeans. And then Jeremiah said, false, I'm not defecting to the Chaldeans, but he did not listen to him. So paying attention to the many times that such incidents occur in the Bible is going to give you a clearer picture of Boaz's words to Ruth here. The elders and the judges of the town, which are picturesquely called the gate of my people, were well aware of the noble character of Ruth since her arrival in Israel. She would have been seen faithfully leaving early in the morning every single day with an empty basket in order to go out cleaning. And she wouldn't have been seen for many, many long hours. And they're hot hours in Israel. You'll find that out when we go to Israel together as a church someday. Upon her return, her basket wasn't only full of grain, but it had been threshed and it had been winnowed. She had done all of the difficult work instead of bringing it home for Naomi to do. And as she walked in, she'd be alone once again not laughing with a bunch of boys. Likewise, for them to be aware of her nature meant that she was respectful to the elders as she passed through the gate. If any of them made a pass at her, she would have carefully said to him, listen, I need to get home and take care of Naomi. And she would have passed along. Anyone attending the gates and seeing her day by day during the harvest season would know now that she was a model of integrity and hard work. And so Boaz uses the term chayil to describe her. 
It is the exact same word that the Bible used to describe him when he was first introduced back in verse 2-1. There is no single word that we have in English to properly translate this word chayil, but rather it includes many aspects of a person, moral, physically willing to work, honorable, respectful, and so on. It's a word that Solomon used to describe a woman of noble character in Proverbs 31, and in that description, he spent 21 full verses to describe such a woman. That same word was used by Boaz to describe Ruth now, a woman who would become Solomon's great-great-grandmother. So it's possible that the family stories about his long-dead ancestor Ruth were what inspired him to write those words about the woman of noble character that we read and cherish about our wife or about our mother. This lovely and virtuous woman was an ideal match for the noble and virtuous man named Boaz. Just as the gate was the logical place for all legal transactions, it was also a place which could testify to the soundness of the actions of Ruth. It is to the gate and to those same people that he's referring to that Boaz will soon go to settle the matter which has been presented to him. Verse 12. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Boaz acknowledges that he is, in fact, a goel and that he can perform the duties that she's requested. However, he is also a chayil. He's a man of virtue. It would be wrong for him to exercise his right without first granting the right to a kinsman who is closer than he was. And there was one closer. His own personal desires, which are perfectly evident from the story that we've been reading, were much less important than obedience to the law, to the customs, and to the culture in which he existed. The symbolic act which Ruth engaged in by her covering herself and requesting a goel was an act that pertained to the rights of the family first and foremost. In his personal emotions, he could not interfere with what is just and what is right before the law. Again, as I ask from time to time, is anyone seeing Jesus in any of these words and concepts? Because he has written all over them. If so, who then is the nearer relative? And why has God given us this beautiful story? Why did he include this? Or is it just a beautiful story without any greater beautiful picture? Verse 13, stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. The old saying, love is quick-witted. You've heard that before, it applies right here. In a short conversation in the dark of night, Boaz developed a plan to ensure that the law would be met, that Ruth's integrity would be preserved, and that both of them, if able, could get a little bit more sleep, or at least she could. Boaz would certainly be lying there mulling over the next day's affairs, carefully deciding what he should do, where he should do it, and what he should say. His first thought here is of Ruth and her protection, asking her to stay the rest of the night. At the late hour, there would be only troublemakers or wild animals out there, and she could get harmed. And the guards at the gate would be far less friendly, especially to an unaccompanied young woman. This thought is actually seen in the book of the Song of Solomon. Here's what it says. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. Harm at night. Boaz wants to keep her from such troubles at this late hour. The second thought is again for Ruth. It is that she would be cared for by his introduction of her request to the nearer Goel. He would ensure that her matter was immediately brought up to him and that she would be tended to. In this verse here is something, I love these things. It's an interesting anomaly 
that occurs only a few times in the entire Old Testament. Hebrew letters are always written the same size, but there are a few exceptions of either smaller or larger letters being used, and it's unsure exactly why they occur. Nobody's certain, and so only speculation can be made. But the first letter of this verse right here is the letter Lamed, and it's much larger than the rest. The letter Lamed indicates it has a picture. Each Hebrew letter has a picture. This one, the picture is a shepherd's staff. It's used to move and direct the sheep and to protect the sheep from predators. The meaning of the letter Lamed, because each letter has a meaning as well, the meaning is to or toward something. And so it's often used as a prefix to nouns, meaning to or toward. If I say I'm going to Jerusalem, I would say le, the letter Lamed, le Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem. It also signifies authority, such as the sign of the shepherd. Interestingly, this guy named Dr. Lightfoot has noted that there is a special mark over the story of Lot's oldest daughter lying with her father, and then there's this special mark in this verse in the story of Ruth going to the bed of Boaz, the larger Lamed. Both relate to one another as well, and both point at the great providence of God in bringing light out of darkness. He notes that Ruth is a mother of Christ out of the incest of Lot, but Lot's oldest daughter is as well. It appears that both of these special marks are given to lead us to, Lamed Le, to Jesus, who is the shepherd of the flock. Verse 13 continues, but if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Boaz's third thought again is for Ruth. The nearer Goel if he doesn't desire to fulfill the duty, then Boaz will step in and he will fulfill it instead. And he confirms his words with a vow. He says, Chai Yehovah. It's not true that vows should not be made at all. But if they are made, they are only to be done so in the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6.13 says this, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. Any lesser vow is tantamount to idolatry. You're saying, I swear on my mother's grave. You're actually elevating that above God. And any vow made in the Lord's name is inviolable. It must be performed. Boaz has sworn in the name of the Lord, and he will fulfill. Verse 13 finishes with these words, lie down until morning. Finally, Boaz's words again, fourth time, they are looking out for Ruth's concern. Not only is she to stay the night, but she should lie down until the morning. There's no need for her to lose sleep, but to rest quietly and to not fret. The vow has been made. She should be at peace. And this is where we end today with the promise of action by Boaz on Ruth's behalf. Whatever happens, she will be taken care of, and the name and memory of her dead husband and his family line will be secure. A kinsman will redeem her. We, like Ruth, although, you know, we're actually alone, and we're actually desolate in this world. We might not think that, but we are. No matter how much we think we might have, even if our basket is overflowing right now, there are no guarantees that that is going to continue. Ruth understood this, but we often fail to see it. I'm not talking about saved believers. I'm talking about people of the world that don't realize that their basket is actually as empty as it could be. When, not if, that basket is empty, it will be too late to call out for redemption. God in his word says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you've never thought it all through, maybe today you should. Tomorrow may never come. 
And so what I would ask you to do is, as I do each week, just give me a moment to explain to you how you can claim your right of redemption because of the work of the Redeemer. The Bible shows us that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. He was qualified being born of Mary and of the Holy Spirit. He did not inherit Adam's sin. And so he could prevail over the law, which nobody else could prevail over. And then the four gospel accounts show us that he perfectly fulfilled the law in all its respects, prevailing over the law. And therefore, he is qualified and he is, cap he is capable and qualified having prevailed over the law. And because he has done that, we can now put our trust in his work. And we can say, I want you to redeem me. You have redeemed me, therefore redeem me. That's what we're seeing in this book of Ruth. And we see it all the way through the entire Old Testament, pointing to one that's coming, that does things that we cannot do for ourselves. And all he asks for is faith. Faith that I did these things on your behalf. And that if you will simply receive my work by faith, I will redeem you. And it can never be taken away. Once you're redeemed, you're redeemed. It's done. God doesn't change his mind. He's not one who goes back on his promises. So if you've never taken the time to call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who proved these things by coming out of the grave, the wages of sin is death, right? If he went into the grave after being crucified and he came out, then he had no sin of his own. He proved this to you. All you need to do is exercise faith that I can't save myself, but he can do it for me and I'm going to put my trust in him. And he will spread the wing of his garment over you and you will forever be under the umbrella of his protection. This is what God asks us to do, and I would ask that you do that today if you've never done it. Our closing verse today comes from Psalm 34. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. It is eternal. When you're redeemed of the Lord, it is done forever. Next week is Ruth 3, verses 14 through 18. It's entitled, Six Measures of Barley. I have since I started reading the Bible, have always wondered about these six measures of barley. Why six measures? I've read it and read it and read it. I always wondered until I did this sermon and I got down into every single word. And we'll get the answer next week why six measures of barley are mentioned. I've always wondered that until I typed this about seven weeks ago. So if you've ever wondered why six measures of barley, stick around for next week. That'll be our ninth Ruth sermon. And just so you know, this past year, Michael Orr talked about him at the beginning of the sermon. He signed a $20 million contract with the Tennessee Titans. That's where he was from, so he got to even go back home. Not bad for an office, often homeless boy who nobody seemed to want. How much more do you think the Lord wants you and will bless you as you seek him? Huh? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. He knows your trials, he knows your troubles, and he knows your woes, and he's there with you through them. And so cling to him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called Midnight at the Threshing Floor. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her at the time of the nightfall. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful as well, he went down, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain to sleep for a spell. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down under the corner of his sheet. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled, to be sure, and turned himself, and there, ending his fright, a woman was lying at his feet, hard to figure. And he said, Who are you? Tell me this thing. So she answered, I am your maidservant, Ruth. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. This is the truth. Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, he said, for you have shown more kindness at the end 
than at the beginning instead. In that after young men, you did not go, whether poor or rich, you did not do so. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that was requested by you. For all the people of my town here know that you are a woman of virtue. Now, it is true that I am a close relative, one cannot deny. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night and in the morning light. It shall be that if he will perform the task of a close relative for you as is right, good, let him do it, for this is what you ask. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you, it is true. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning, until the day dawns anew. Ruth has sought a kinsman to redeem, and she has found a man willing to do so. Whether it will be Boaz or another, it would seem that the new day the truth will show. We too have a kinsman willing to redeem each of us. He is near to us because he is also a man, and yet none other than the Lord God, Jesus. Such is the wisdom of God's glorious plan. Let us come to him and let him, his garment spread, willingly over each one of us. For he is Christ the Lord, our Savior and our head. He is the incarnate word, our glorious Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, yes, Lord. Thank you for this ongoing story of beauty. I just, it gets more and more wonderful with every week and seeing how your son is prefigured in all of these wonderful pictures and what a man of virtue he is, that we can trust in him. We can look to him for every honorable, every noble thing that could possibly be. And we can say, I want that. I want to participate in what he has done. And then we can be redeemed and have him spread his wing over us and to keep us safe for all eternity. I can't even imagine what it's like. I'm worn out at 50 years and sometimes I, I think I can't go on. And yet you've promised us an eternal, eternal time of delight and pleasure. We'll be searching out your mysteries and your glories for all eternity and reveling in the splendor of who you are and all because of the work of your son, our Lord Jesus. So we want to give you praise. We want to give you glory and we want to give you thanks and we'll do so in his name. Amen. All right, we get the instructions for the Lord's Supper right out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the words of Paul, which he certainly received from Luke because it's the same words that Luke records. And uh, he writes there, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have blessed this bread. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. Imagine that. Jesus broke this bread, knowing that his body would be broken. He broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed the wine as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam. Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
was asked this morning in an email, which I haven't answered yet, but I was asked, do we take the Lord's Supper every week? And the answer is yes, because he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And in this act, we are proclaiming his death until he comes again. This is our remembrance of the work of Jesus Christ, and it's our obligation to take it in a humble and right manner. And so let's take a moment, and let's just pray to the Lord and get our past week behind us and look forward to a good week before we take these elements. And the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gentlemen, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, one more quick prayer, thanking you for Darla, who's back here and feeling better this week, and we would pray that you would continue to sustain her. Thank you that Mom is feeling better, and you would do so with her as well. We pray for a safe trip for uh, Elaine back to Sarasota. And uh, Lord, just any need or any affliction that's on the hearts or in the bodies of anybody here or anybody even online that's participating with us today, that you would be with them and heal them, bring them to restoration and fill them with the joy and peace that you only you can give. And we'll be sure to give you praise and thanks and honor for every good blessing that comes our way because you were worthy of that. And we'll do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.